Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady, and for this week's discussion, I have Stanley Illman. Now, Stanley is a longtime overland traveler, but he's also a race driver for off-road racing, including winning the Roof of Africa. And he's also traveled around the world in various vintage car rallies. So these are some really fun conversations with Stanley about traveling around the world in both vintage cars and in overland vehicles. Stanley has a love for the Galandewagen, so we talk about that vehicle and we talk about some of the other platforms that he's built throughout the years, including the Entdecker G-Wagon uh, and his time owning Unicat too. So this is a really great conversation around overland vehicles, but it's a fun conversation around travel in Africa because Stanley's been traveling in Africa for the last 60 plus years, and he has some great stories to tell. So really interesting conversation with Stanley Illman. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. Well, Stanley, thank you so much for spending time with me this morning. You are one of the legends of our industry. Uh, You helped to create so many of the unique vehicles and products that we all enjoy today, and it's gonna be fun to hear not only where you've traveled around the world, but what led you to a lot of those decisions uh, that resulted in the creation of those products. But <clears throat> what I'd love to start with is the story of, of, of how you somehow survived rolling a Porsche on a rally into a drainage ditch um, and, and are still with us today, because that's an incredible story. Yeah, well, that happened on uh, London, Sydney, and uh, we were rallying through, uh, through Malaysia. And we were in a banana plantation for a stage, and Franz was driving, not me. (laughs) (laughs) And we lost control and went into a ditch upside down full of water. Wow. And uh, the car was uh, submerged. Uh, We couldn't get out the back because of the roll cage. The two walls on the side of of the vehicle couldn't get out the windows, and the front was buried in the mud. So the best we could do was to cost for a little bit of air on the top, which you had to take off your helmet, we struggled around a bit, we got to the top, and uh, from my diving experiences in the early years as a, <laughs> as a North Sea diver when I was young, um, you blow bubbles to see where up and down is because it's pitch black. Oh, sure. Okay, and uh, managed to find some air at the top, and we sat there for 45-50 minutes waiting for someone to come and rescue us. So luckily a Ford Falcon crashed behind us and in the same corner 
and, wow. but didn't land on top of us, otherwise we would have been finished. Yeah, sure. But he landed behind us, and they they could get out because they weren't completely flat. Um, they weren't submerged in anything. They could climb out, and they saw us there, and they signaled for the next guy that came through to report it back to control, and then they came with a crane and hoisted us and the vehicle <laughs> out. And if I remember, you... you you got the, the car running again and you completed the journey. No, no, no. We not, didn't. That, not that, that, one? that one was my final. That's when Front and I said, I think we're old enough to get out of this game now. <laughs> well, you still classic, can. <laughs> well, we still can. Yeah. And that was a big fright for both of us and it was a close call. And uh, after that, we actually stopped racing. Yeah. As, you know, but we still, we still carry on. Four by four. <laughs> yes, the do. team carries on forever. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. As long as we can. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, where were you born, and what kind of started your love for the outdoors? I was born here in Johannesburg, South Africa, and um, my father was a pharmacist, and uh, my grandparents had a small holding north of Johannesburg with a little farm that. Uh, uh, they had chickens and some cattle, and it was a hobby for my grandfather. And uh, I started my life with the outdoor, being with them a lot, because my parents were always working in a pharmacy. Sure. And uh, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents as a youngster. Yeah. And I learned from that, you know, basically. And then you spent quite a bit of time riding horses early in life too. I used to ride horses, I enjoyed that very much. I did a little bit of show jumping, Yeah, that interested me. Then I moved to motorcycles. Yes. I started very early in motorcycles at 16. I was on a small Gorelli, that's what we were allowed to ride then, or an item, those two Italian little mopeds. <laughs> and we started on those, we used to travel all over the country with them. Amazing. And uh, going long distances like three, four hundred kilometers on a 50cc <laughs> and, and bicycles of course when we were younger. Sure. And you know it was an open way of life in South Africa and you could travel everywhere and it was very safe. Was well great. and it was it's interesting because you've covered so many different means of travel throughout throughout your time and so many different kinds of vehicles. Um, one of the one of the stories that I remember hearing was uh, you buying a, a, unim, a Unimog, and, and talk about what, why did you purchase a Unimog and where did you drive it to? <laughs> <laughs> well, that all started as, a, as something different. Yeah. Okay? Um, we'd done all the 4x4 stuff, we'd traveled through Africa, we had gone all the way up to Ethiopia, all the way around, and for many years of, I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands of kilometers I've done off-road, I decided one day, I think a Unimog is a good idea. <laughs> it's a, it's the ultimate 4x4 vehicle. Yeah. I bought a Unimog in Germany, had it moved to right-hand drive, imported it into South Africa, put a, a canvas back on the back of it, just with a, call a small uh, load bed, and it was a four-seater, uh, the double uh, four-door front, the two Frances and myself went for a test drive, Ethiopia and there were two rooftop tents on the top and then when it came back I then shipped it to Germany because I wanted to build a proper camper van out of it and went to Unicat and they helped me build that whole vehicle and brought it back here and then the late Paul Allen bought that Unimog from me. Yeah I remember that story yeah. and that 
uh, that was actually the first Unimog I had ever driven was yours. Right. And this was in uh, 2010 here in South Africa when we went up to your game farm. That was right. the first time I had ever I had ever driven hey, Unimog. a Unimog and it was incredible. And the, the camper that you had on there was very unique in the fact that you had, had it, if I recall correctly, the whole back of it dropped down and became like an observation platform. It was a sleeping platform actually. Yeah. So we could sleep out there. You know, it was a great vehicle. It was yeah. really great fun. I've traveled quite a bit with it after that. We crossed into, when it was finished in Uricat, we went and crossed the Sahara. I remember that. You went over the Atlas Mountains and everything. Yeah, I went all the way across and we went to Tunisia and through to Libya and all the way down to Sudan. Yeah. What did you enjoy about that trip? What was, what was oh, unique? Oh, the desert is magical. I'm yeah. still a great lover of deserts. Yeah. yeah I'm not, a, not great on jungles because I don't think you have the depth of field there's sure. too many trees it's it's very close up yeah but the desert with those open spaces for me i can drive there all day, yeah, day. I, I agree with you there's something i think uh, peaceful and mystical uh, yes all of that about the desert mm -hmm. and it and it uh, you feel like you're a part of the place correct yeah whereas you're right in the jungle it's kind of you're surviving the jungle <laughs> you're not only you don't have it any distance you yeah know, it's close up and it's damp and it's <laughs> yeah. Not quite my style of being, yeah. but that's about it. Well, we, we spent quite a bit of time, so we, uh, Stanley and I, we did a trip uh, with some friends, uh, Brian Bass, who many of you on the podcast have heard. Um, we went to Kenya, and we flew into Kenya, and we picked up the Galanda Vagans. Um, let's talk a little bit about those cars, uh, because I think it's interesting as before we talk about the trip, but... You had uh, purchased 10 specialty specs. There were nine of them, actually. Okay. We managed, we couldn't get 10. The Swiss uh, Alex, through Alex in Switzerland, we managed to, be, to buy what they called the Green Line, which was a military-style vehicle and used for military purposes, and we could actually spec the vehicle the way we wanted it. Mm. And uh, we bought nine vehicles. Of those, seven were converted into Indecas. They were all... We took them down to uh, Unicat again, and they converted seven of them into into Indecas. And we yeah. had a group of guys that everybody wanted one. Yeah. And uh, I kept two, and the rest was sold off. And Alex kept one, and a friend of mine, Richard Schilling, he kept another one. And we had some great trips in those vehicles all over Africa. In incredible vehicles. And if I remember, a lot somewhere along the way. Um, you purchased some or all of Unicat to finish the project. Is well, that true? <laughs> Unicat had a little bit of a problem at one stage, and we actually bought into it, but then we sold out. And yeah. It, there was a great guy there, Voss, who owns it still today. Yeah. Okay. He was a big IT guy. He had lots of bucks. I didn't have that kind of bucks yeah. to support Unicat, but when we finished our stuff, uh, we got out and he stayed in. And yeah. we're still great friends, all of us. Thomas uh, Rutter at Unicat and Voss and myself and Bernie, all great friends. That was a, a very ambitious project, and for, for many of us who've been around the Overland space for a long time, uh, the Entdeckers were kind of this mystical vehicle because they were so rare, and there was, there was so much thought that went into them, like a degree of finish that you'd never see in a typical wagon. The way Because how many, how many liters of fuel did you have on board, if I remember? We had close to 220, 230 liters, somewhere yeah. around there. Uh, we had 125 liters of water, 
everything stored very low down, so we had a very good center of gravity. We designed all the inside, all was done here at Front Runner. Yeah. Okay, we designed all the vehicles here, and then we had them built by Unicat in Germany, because they were Swiss registered vehicles. We couldn't bring them into South Africa. Sure. Because uh, left-hand drive was not allowed, and we could only buy it in left-hand drive. I tried to buy some right-hand drive. I ones, see. And you even had two fridges, if I remember. Yeah, uh, two National Luna fridges yeah. we had at the time, and uh, in each vehicle, yeah. one deep freeze, one fridge, 40 yeah. liters each, and uh, we had rooftop tent from Magellina at that stage, and uh, that was the vehicle. Yeah, and they really worked. They really functioned well. So when when we flew into Kenya. Um, I remember we went to this remote runway, and this was another hilarious story. It's amazing, these stories that come up in, in my travels with you, but we were flying on a Cessna caravan, and we land in this remote runway in, in Kenya, and it turns out that the plane we were flying on, you used to own. Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, <laughs> so. that, what happened was on the way up, I sold the plane, I had a Cessna caravan for a while, I sold it. I never knew who the owner was. All I knew, the money arrived in the bank, <laughs> and it went up to Kenya. That I didn't know, but where or how or why for, and I remember there was some guy up there in Kenya that bought it. And we, when we were taking the Unimog on its first trip up to Ethiopia at Nanuki, we passed this runway, the Nanuki runway, and I saw my plane because it had a, an elephant called Shamu, one of the big great elephants of the Kruger Park. Uh, on the tail, okay, a picture of it in green and gold, and uh, I said, hey, hang on, let's go in there, I want to see who, where this plane is, so I walked in and uh, I saw, and I asked the question, uh, where's the owner of the plane? They said, no, he's in the hangar there fixing some engine on an aircraft, so I went in and I met, and I said, hi, are you the owner? He said, yes. I said, I'm Stanley Ilman from South Africa. Oh, that's your plane that I bought. <laughs> and that was Jamie yeah. Roberts. What a nice guy. And uh, since then, we've been friends for many, many years going forward. And we left our cars there. He came down here. We yes. see each other often. He, he runs a thing called Tropic Air. And he runs, he runs flights back and forth from Nairobi to get people. He does a lot of helicopter work up sure. north there. And uh, he, he runs a chartered business as well Amazing. at the same time. Yeah, what a nice guy he was. Right. And, he, and he helped us with some of our route planning. And right. The yeah. Roberts family is a great family in northern Kenya. Yeah, right. it, was very, it was very fun to meet them. And again, just how crazy that story is. Okay. That that's where your, your plane was. Right. Um, and then we, we left from there and we, and we drove across Kenya and into Uganda, which was just magic. It, was that your first time to Uganda? No, the second time to Uganda, not going as far north as we did to Kapita, yeah. okay, and uh, uh, that was the first time I'd been that far north, but yeah. I'd been in earlier, I'd been into the bottom end of Uganda. But yeah, and we had this, an amazing time in Kidepo at the, at the game reserve sure. up in the north where we were, <clears throat> it was so rare to be able to go into a, a game park and just wild camp where there was no fences. Nothing. I mean, we were just, it was just us out in the bush, That's it, yeah. you know, and, and that was so interesting. We had that really sweet guy with us, the, one, of the, one of the park rangers, and he had a, 
an AK-47. And I remember asking him, I said, when's the last time you shot that gun? And he says, well, when they when they gave it to me 10 years ago, <laughs> you know, so, and he was the one that was going to, that was going to protect us. <laughs> yeah, well, we were close to the Sudanese border. That's right. In fact, we ended up going into South Sudan. Yeah, the, the, the road I knew led into there for a little while. That's right. That's right. We got to go into the desert a little bit, which was fun. And we saw those, uh, you know, they were clearly, um, Know, bringing things illegally across the sure. border. The border. Yeah. yeah, that was really interesting. I mean, and given where I'm at with my trip right now, I sure wish um, I could still get into Sudan. It's not not possible at, right. the moment, at this so. moment. It looks like real civil war breaking yeah, out here right. at the moment. Yeah, it's that's a great right. shame. Yeah, it is a it's shame. Also, a great country. Yeah, beautiful country. When you look back on the vehicles that you've built, talk about the things around the Entdecker or any of the other vehicles. What are some of the core elements that you try to look at when you prepare a vehicle for overland travel? Carry as little as possible, as light as possible. You do need the range if you can across long distances. I mean, I think we had a range of just on 1,800 kilometers in yeah. our vehicle uh, in the desert. I think for one trip we did through Algeria that we crossed, there was a stretch of 1,200. We didn't quite make it. We had to take with four vehicles and we had to take, uh, we sent one forward, took the fuel out of the others to send the one to go and fetch fuel to bring back for mm -hmm. us to get to the next sure. town. Okay. So how close did you get? Within 30, 40 kilometers? No, or? about 150. Oh, oh. <laughs> the desert is hard going, it's very hard to judge how much fuel you're going to use. And those are yeah. heavy cars? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you find that uh, keeping the vehicle simple, light, You've always really liked the Galanda wagons. What about the G-Wagon do you find that you like the most? It's a very robust vehicle. It's, it's hard to break. The modern ones, like the Indeca, too much electronics, unfortunately. Mm. Not yeah. much you can do about it. But you had to learn how to reset and what to do. And we had the uh, Mercedes units to, to actually find the faults I and remember that, try yeah. and fix and do. But, you know, it, they've never let us down. We've always driven them out. Doesn't matter what happened, we've driven them home. Well, I remember. And I've remember. never been stuck, actually, I'm very lucky, touch wood, <laughs> that uh, I've never had to tow a vehicle home. I've Amazing. always managed to drive home wherever I've been. Well, and even when we were on that trip in Kenya and Uganda, we I think we lost the, what was it, the 12 volt alternator on, on Alex's, Alex's car. car, yeah. And then we had to, we had to run cables out through the window and yeah, to get 12 volts back into the, the and ECU. The, and the battery, the yeah. batteries were boiling. Boiling and, and everything. Uh, you we made got it, it home. You yeah. did. We it, made it, got um, it back. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, amazing. And one of my favorite stories, uh, and I actually love it when your wife Gilly tells the story, but it was when I think you were either first married or... or Just before very we were married, actually. And you drove to Mound from Johannesburg and you, I mean, how many days were you driving in the water? Well, we, we drove from Johannesburg up to Kasani. Okay. And then in December, and the Mbabi depression was fully underwater. Never been up there before. No GPSs or anything like that in yeah. those days. No radio communication, nothing. Just a Land Rover uh, 110. And uh, we drove up there in the, early, in the late, 60s got to Kasani and I said well the compass says there's the direction 
to Mount, and I had an aeronautical map with a whole lot of little numbers on, didn't quite understand it properly. I thought, oh, there must be villages or something. They don't put the names there, just put a number. Anyway, we drove and we drove and we drove out of Kasani. We were in the water for five days, lost driving around on hunting tracks that you can see in the water. Sure. And uh, eventually found a beacon underwater and took a jar so I could see what the number was on the beacon and went under and had a look at the number and then found it on the map and then took a compass heading, <laughs> took a sextant reading in the evening and found my way down to Mount. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I love hearing stories like that and the ones recently that I, I had with Tom Shepard out of the UK. Be, before GPS and before satellite communication and all of that, I mean, it was such another level of adventure. Yeah, I mean, if you missed Mount by two or three kilometers each side, you were back in the in the pants. Yeah. <laughs> so that was it. And the only place there was fuel was Mount. Yeah. In those days. And Mount consisted of Riley's Garage, which was a hotel as well, the Riley Hotel. There we got fuel. And there must have been, I don't know, maybe 10 or 20 huts in Mount in the 60s, yeah. late, late 60s. Amazing. And now it's quite a thriving little... That's unbelievable yeah. what's happened there. Tar runways, big jets come flying in. They do. They do. Well, it's such an incredible part of the world. I mean, it is... It seems to me a lot like the Garden of Eden. I mean, it's... It is, uh, to me, it is the Garden of Eden. Yeah. The Okavango Swamps is the Garden of Eden. Yeah. There's no question about it. There's some, some photographs I've taken in the setting sun when you, I mean, you, the giraffe are drinking and the hippo are, I mean, it's just it's unbelievable. unbelievable. We camped so much there while camping in yeah. the years. We used to just go and camp and go and drive around in all the parks there. And yeah. It was very open in those days. Today they've closed an awful lot. Control and it's a lot of tourists there and stuff. But in the early years there was no one. In all of your, your travels, if I remember, you've done the length of the Americas in Raleigh vehicles, you've done you did a trip from all the way up to, to Alaska in a rally vehicle too? Yes, we did uh, London to Mexico was one trip. And then we did uh, Panama, Alaska, mm -hmm. from Panama all the way through on the rally cars. We did London, Sydney. And London, Singapore you did at one point too, didn't you? No, London, Sydney, that was the one. The second one when we crashed, yeah. that was the last one. We yeah. did one before that before, all in classic cars, the old Porsches. Yeah, sure. France is a genius at the old Porsches and uh, we had a lot of fun. Amazing. Yeah. Well, you and I just went the other day and we got to go to a, a Porsche club here in South Africa and take a look at those vehicles and yeah, I could see that they still bring a sparkle to your eye. Oh so. yes, the old 911s. Oh, so, so fantastic. And the old 356s in the early years. Yeah, you know. so fantastic. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's, that I wanted to talk to you about, because I think it helps those that are listening, is you've also designed a lot of products for your own travels. You, you built them for your own needs. That's how it started. Yeah. What were some of the things uh, that you learned through that process? Talk about some of like the basics of those products that you felt really made a difference. Yeah, well, it started off was in the first uh, G-Wagon that I had. The Land Rover, we never, it was a 110. There were only two of us traveling. We never had a roof rack or anything. Mm. Managed to fit everything inside. There was no rooftop tents either in those days. We should sure. sleep inside the back of the vehicle up in the in the north, otherwise camp on the ground. And 
but the thing was then the first Gelenderwagen came out so they bought it was a short wheelbase uh, 300D no power yeah sure very <laughs> slow car <laughs> very slow on yeah. power anyway that was the vehicle and we had a roof rack from Germany on it from the factory and the first big bump of dip on a, in a riverbed <laughs> the roof rack landed on the bonnet <laughs> and that was my first starts to get it going to so build a proper proper roof rack to yeah. build a proper roof rack and actually that's where I found Frontrunner which was a very small company that belonged to Safari Center in South Africa there was a guy at here that was making roof racks welded aluminium roof racks I came to him and I said well can you build me a roof rack I want it like this and like that and like that and he said fine and he built me the roof rack and then while we were busy he said well the company's got problems and they need money so I bought the company I just retired out of the public company that I was involved in and I was 52 at the stage I bought Frontrunner in 2000 actual yeah. company and so made a couple of welded together roof racks so I bought that took the company over all the assets started took two of my ex-employees from the Baltics group that didn't want to work there anymore and wanted to join me and uh, we started Frontrunner and slowly but surely we built all the product line based around the roof rack to start with mm-hmm. because it seemed to be becoming quite popular at the time Sure. and then we developed the Slimline 2 which was a non-welded roof rack that you could pack smaller for the American market Yeah. and we had a big learning lesson how to pack and what to do sure. to market in the United States Yeah. how the online business starts to work with sure. Tina and Dave and Renee all of us together yeah. you know, my two daughters and my son-in-law and we managed to get it all going at the end of the day. You did. It's been a product that people now recognize and people go out of their way to purchase because it does a good job. I think it does a good job. It's a very strong rack. Uh, yeah. the, uh, the members, the slats as we call them, run from east to west on the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Most other roof racks run north to south. I see other competitors now making, copying us. Okay, yeah. Everybody before that said it wouldn't work, but it does work. And it makes a much stronger rack than most racks. Well, and the one thing that I like about it is that it can be configured. So it's possible to, like if you have a sunroof, you can remove those slats Correct. directly over the sunroof. So you can stand up inside the vehicle if you're in a game park or whatever. There's there's options to It's re- very flexible in, yeah. in the way it's done. Just Frontrunners just launched a, uh, a van rack now that's fully configurable so you can move the slats independently to have all the hatches and the air conditioning on top of the roof at the yeah, same time. Sure that so we've just launched that so I think that's going to be a great success. Well yeah they have been I mean you can definitely see how popular the front runner racks are around the world. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well when you travel and go on a ferry going across to Africa from <laughs> Europe just look across the top you see yeah. hundreds of racks on you the front do. runner. You do you really really do. You also have a love for motorcycles, and you've done some, some great trips on motorcycles too. What's your, what's your favorite bike that you like to ride? At the moment, it's a GS, it's 1250. Yeah. I always try and keep up to date with that. But I started on, as I said, the Gorillis, and then yeah. moved to the Husqvarna's, the Maikos, the, the Scrambler type. Sure. Enduro bikes, uh, Africa Twins. Uh, I had all of them on the way. 
okay? In the early years, I had a Triumph and I had an Autumn, yeah. okay? I think you even told me that you had a black shadow, right? Yeah, at one stage, yeah. Incredible, I mean, yeah. these are these are motorcycles. Well, if I dead. kept everything I never I sold it, I would have a lot of, a lot <laughs> yeah. of value in the product Un that I had. Unbelievable, I mean, just, I mean, the, that old Norton would have been incredible, but it's to awesome. have a black, to black, have a black shadow, unbelievable. That's no, another story. That's just such a rare motorcycle. No, Actually, there was an aerial square four. There were all those old bikes. There was a thing called a Munch with an NSU motor. We went through all those bikes together. I had some good bike friends here in South Africa. We yeah. used to ride a lot. When we were younger, we used to ride to Durban in the middle of the night. How we did it, I don't know. <laughs> but with no, hardly a headlamp, it was like a candle in front. But there was no traffic, and yeah. we used to go you know, five hours to Durban. I mean, that out all the way, no goggles, no helmet, t-shirt, jeans, that was it. <laughs> Unbelievable. Tried to, trying to uh, be Steve McQueen. <laughs> yeah, I think, think <laughs> a lot, I think a lot of wanted, a lot of us have wanted to be Steve McQueen yeah. for sure, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Uh, wow. You've seen a lot of growth in the overland industry. You've seen it explode in the last 20 years uh, since you started. Um, your ownership of Frontrunner. What is some advice that you can give to young travelers, new travelers um, in the overland space that are looking for advice from someone who's been around the world like you have? What are some pieces of advice that you would give them if you were sitting down with them? The most important advice is go around the mountain, not over the mountain, mm -hmm. okay, if you can. Look after your vehicle, right? Keep it as light as possible. Whatever you do, don't use on one trip, leave behind yeah. and take it on the next trip. There's a lot of good vehicles around. You can make some nice builds depending where you're going and what you're doing. Yeah. Drive carefully. You know, the off-road is if you have an accident and you're on your own, you can be in the middle of nowhere. There's nobody to rescue or anything. Yeah. So you have to keep that in mind in a big way. Today, a little better. You can have a little spot meter that you yeah, can send true. some signals out or a Garmin or yeah. You know, with a satellite phone, so it's not as bad as it used to be. Sure. But that's those are the things we do. That's what I noticed when I traveled with you guys, is um, you're all really excellent drivers. It doesn't mean that you drive slow, because you don't drive no, I slow. I think we drive quite slow. <laughs> Compared to rallying, we drive yeah, very slow. Yeah. So, but you, you drive with purpose, but you, there's also a lot of precision in the driving and I was impressed by that. I'm oftentimes surprised how how often people will be driving internationally distracted. They'll be on their phone or they'll be, you know, not paying attention. Right, that you can't do in the bush. You cannot no, do that. You not have on those kind of roads or those surfaces. Yeah, you're and plus the person that's in the passenger seat is relying on you to make good choices. Correct. And he's so, got to watch out for you as well. You can't right. see everything. Though. That's right. So you have to be working as a team and the driver has to take responsibility that this is my job for the next two hours, three sure. hours, however long until you swap out. Um, and I'm going to pay attention. Sure. I'm not going to be uh, on my phone. I'm not going to be distracted. I'm going to I'm not going to be tired, sure. you know, and making sure that, uh, but that was, I was really impressed by that with Franz and you and Alex, just really experienced drivers and you guys drove. And another very big thing from a safety point of view, don't drive at night. Yeah. Not in, not, 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 not in the wild. Huh? Yeah. Really. But there's so many things that can come up. There's so animals many things, and animals and that. Dusk and dawn are dangerous times as well because sure. animals are crossing. 
sure. and moving. So those are the times you have to be careful. Absolutely, absolutely. Have you had any any uh, unusual encounters with animals in no, Africa? I had on the one Galena Wagon, I had a kudu that crossed, jumped in front of us at dusk. We hit that and the horn went, it came, the kudu came through the windscreen, but the horn went in the roof above my head through. I remember. So that that same Galandavagen, this was this was in 2010. You let me borrow that car. That's a two thirty. It was a two thirty, and I was going to take it up through Lesotho. And you were you were walking me around the vehicle. It was a very simple vehicle, and you said, "Oh, that hole in the roof <laughs> is from a kudu horn." Yeah, yeah. And of course, the vehicle was was flawless even through Lesotho. I mean, it was it wasn't a new vehicle. Well, at that we time. drove that from the accident happened just outside Wanky Game Reserve up in uh, Zimbabwe, and we drove all the way home without a windscreen. And now you bring a windscreen with you, I noticed. We normally make it, we, 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 the beauty of a Galenavagen has a flat windscreen, mm -hmm. so we had a piece of polycarbonate cut out exactly the same dimensions that we can actually fit. And if I remember, another story that you've told me is something broke out a side window on the vehicle. Oh yeah, that was in Botswana last year. Oh, last year, yeah. And, uh, what happened is a truck passed us and hit the side window and knocked yeah. the, the window completely out. Well, we had the windscreen up, up top, so we cut the windscreen out. Yeah, you the made same it work. Size and we made it work. That's one thing that has always been so impressive about South, South Africans is you make a plan. We make a plan. Get and it I, going. And it's got to be, it just has to be, if you think about hundreds of years ago when your ancestors first sailed to South Africa, think about how hardy those people would have been. How committed, how dur durable. I mean, just the fact that they survived means that their offspring is gonna be pretty interesting people. Well, I mean, even if you see the, the poor um, refugees that are coming yeah. out of Africa trying to cross into Europe, what they endure, Unbelievable. They walk, what they do, I mean, it's terrifying. Yeah, those it are the most skilled individuals you'll ever meet. Okay? That's right. True survivors. Yes. True, true survivors. And it was the same with your ancestors too. I mean, to get on a wooden boat and to sail down the coast of Africa. <laughs> That's another story. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah it's, it, and so I find that South Africans are a very, very hardy bunch. And, what and they it, say is a boer maka plan. <laughs> that means a farmer makes a plan. Yeah. <laughs> he has to. There's yeah. nobody around. Yeah, there's, they've got to figure it out. And I've seen that. And, and I experienced that in my travels with you in Uganda and Kenya. Anytime we had a problem, you guys just took out the, the tools and you started working on the car. That's it. What else can you do? <laughs> That's right. Put it together. Again. Yeah, it, it was an inspiration to me for sure. Let's talk a little bit about traveling with your family because I think that that's something that we're seeing more and more families traveling together. You and your wife have traveled extensively around the world. What have you found helps um, the two of you, Gilly and you, travel well together? I think we tolerate each other. We've been <laughs> together for 50 odd years, yeah, sure. well, almost 60 years now. Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, we, we tolerate each other and we're a good fit, okay? And the kids are the same, you know, we, yeah. we've got a quite a close-knit family. Uh, Tina is now in the States for many years, Venezia, and I think, you know, between the kids and us, it's just a way of life, yeah. a very enjoyable life, and we're very blessed. Huh? Yeah, and what have you found helps um, when you travel with your kids when you were... Well, make them part of it. Yeah. Make them dig the car out, you know, <laughs> all those kind of things. 
And you taught them all how to drive. I mean, I remember being so impressed by the the driving skill of Renee and Tina both when right. I've traveled with them right. off road. I mean, prop they're proper drivers. Right. No, they can drive. Yeah. They can drive. Still got a little bit to learn, but they can drive. <laughs> we all do. They haven't done enough mileage. <laughs> yeah. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, we all got to get enough mileage under our belt. Yeah. And you, you are able to work with Renee um, every day. What are some things that you've learned in being able to work with your daughter? Oh, it's a close family tie. Now we, you know, it, we work every day together and we, we control front runner at this moment in time together with Keith. Yeah, and now with our new shareholders at Medic, um, we'll push forward. And uh, now in the corporate world, okay, once again, yeah. I'm back with the thousands <laughs> of people, Yeah. okay, <coughs> as employees. And Life comes full circle. Life comes full circle, so we're back yeah. at square one again. And uh, yeah, we'll see how we handle it. I yeah. think it's fine. Yeah. Uh, I think the Medic will be a good fit for Frontrunner. Yeah. Going forward, I think we can build something really great together. Yeah. And it must be a blessing uh, to be able to work with your daughter every day. That's very nice. No, yeah. it's great stuff. Yeah, yeah. We're very close, all of yeah. us. No, it, I've, I've seen it. It's always been something that I'm so impressed by is how close you guys are as a family, yeah. too. Well, Stanley, it's been such a joy to have you on the, oh, po thank you, on the Scott. podcast. Uh, I consider you a great friend. I'm so grateful for the travels we've been able to do together. But, um, and I look for, we might even be able to do a trip here in the next month or so. Well, hopefully north. you get your new vehicle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The Grenadier is still in the... The Grenadier, we have to right. see what that thing can do. Yeah, that's right. Okay, it'll be interesting. And maybe we can meet on the way. We're going on the beginning of August. Yeah. We're going up north. And uh, let's see. Maybe at the rate we're together. at the rate we're going, I think it might line up just perfect. <laughs> we'll find you. Yeah, if that's anything right. else, we'll find you. <laughs> that's great. That hopefully not part of the. Uh, no, no, no. Let's road. hope not. Let's <laughs> hope not. We're going to keep that bonnet closed on the yeah, Grenadiers. So. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Very good, Stanley. Thank you again for your time. Oh, uh, thank you for your time. Scott. All right. And thank we you. thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.